Apple presents events at the Apple Store. All right, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, film critic Lisa Schwarzbaum. Thank you. It is a delight to be here because Mr. Turner is one of the gorgeous movies of the year, and I'm saying that not paid, not, not to cast a vote. It is just a beautiful piece of work by Mike Lee. Um, if you have seen Topsy Turvy, you will understand his sensitivity and his sense of play in talking about what it's like to be an artist. And before I bring out our uh, wonderful director and star, I'd like you to see the trailer for Mr. Turner. pictures, Mr. Turner. <laughs> She'd make a fine subject for you to paint. Oh, is that so? Oh, I shall cogitate upon it. <laughs> when I experience a masterpiece such as yours, I'm struck by the clarity with which you have captured the moment. Why on earth would he go and do that? He's ruined a masterpiece. It's a boy. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Turner seems to have taken leave of form altogether. Turner. Clearly losing his eyesight. A masterpiece I here present, which Mr. Turner has just sent. I believe you to be a man of great spirit and fine feeling. The universe is chaotic, and you make us see it. You are a man of great vision, Mr. Turner. Please welcome the director, Mike Lee, and the star, Timothy Spall. Evening. Good evening. I, I wanted to start actually by reading words that you, Mike Lee, have written yourself, where you say, I have turned the camera around on ourselves, we who try to be artists with all the struggles our calling demands. Tell me why coming back to an artist and coming to Mr. Turner interested you. Well, um, I think he interests me anyway, apart from, apart from the thing of turning the camera around on us. I think uh, the paintings where I started, um, which are fantastic, and I've spent a long time really enjoying them and loving them, really. 
and it just seemed that to me that there was a story to be told about the painter, especially when I decided when I just started to find out about him. Um, fascinating guy, really. Um, I, for me, what's interesting is um, when I talk about turning the camera around, and it's the thing we did on Topsy Turvy as well. Yes. Um, it, it's just that we, you know, people are people, and a job of work's a job of work. And this is a film about a guy who rolls up his sleeves and, you know, get, does the down and dirty business of doing it, really. And so, the, you know, of course, it's about, a, you could say it's about a genius, it's about um, a clairvoyant in some way, but actually, the real thing is he's a person like we are, you know, and uh, I think what's, to me, what's interesting about, I mean, why I'm driven to make films anyway is to look at people, at real people, the way we are, you know. So I, I wanted to talk actually to um, Tim Spall, who today won the New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Actor. How kind of you, thank you. And we in New York think that's a much larger award than winning the Best Acting Award at Cannes. It's much bigger here in New York. Well, whatever, whatever it is, I don't mind. It was a great surprise. I had no idea that um, it was coming my way. I had no idea that I was... Uh, in a in in the, in the frame because I certainly didn't have a right fill in an application form, so to be told that I'd won an award was an absolute delight. Uh, and you know the New York uh, Film Critics Awards is a you know they're an august body. So they are an august know, body. Yeah. Yeah. So um, speaking of august bodies. Um, Mr. Turner was a member of the Academy. He um, ruffled people. How did you learn to embody this guy who is both cantankerous and um, uh, mean sometimes and, and not caring about other people's feelings and yet having such great heart? Well, that, the way that, uh the way that Mike works uh, is, uh, I think it's, it's, it's documented that, you know, we use uh, a huge amount of uh, improvisation and Mike sets you the task to create a character um, from, from zero up to creating a, per a person. Um, and so the whole rehearsal process is not a rehearsal because there isn't a script to rehearse. It's a process of creation uh, right from nothing to what you see the finished subject. I mean, uh, Mike's genius as the dramatist and as the person in charge of this uh, exercise is to ask you to bring a great deal, to collaborate with him and to uh, embrace with him the idea of making a film about someone's life. So you spend a lot of time on the nitty-gritty of what this person is and trying to embody it rather than impersonate it. And this began with your learning to paint? Um, yeah, it started... I, uh, I phoned Mike because I was sitting outside this pub in uh, central London in Covent Garden feeling a bit sorry for myself. And I looked up and there was a plaque up and it said JMW Turner was born here in 1775 above his f father's barber shop. And I remember Mike had mentioned to me that he had this idea and I phoned him up 
he wasn't there, but then he phoned me back and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm just wandering around, failing to be enigmatic. And uh, he said, come in. And so I went uh, up to his office. He said, you know, I was telling about that coincidence, you should be sitting outside, because that's going to be my next film. And would you like, do me the great favour, because uh, it's not going to be for three years of learning how to paint. So I said, yeah. And I did. And I was taught by a great guy. Uh, I got up to the standard of Turner when he was about eight or nine. Months, months old. Fun. Months old. Yeah, eight or nine months old, yeah. yeah. Um, but it was all an exercise in learning how to hold a brush and how to look like you've been born with a, something in your hand. Uh, obviously, metaphorically, not literally, because it would have been very uncomfortable for his mother, but the, if somebody who was... Um, somebody who'd be in a round paint, literally from the point they could walk. And know. yet there's a very specific um, physicality to what you're doing. Well, you know what? Let's take a look at a clip first and get a sense of Mr. Turner amongst his peers, and then we'll talk further about your technique, art technique, life in general. Good morning, Mr. Turner. Martin, Sir Billy Gussie. Good day, Delighted you, Billy. you could join us. Damn fine spectacle this year, Billy. Mm-hmm. Aha! Mm. <laughs> Very fine day to you, Mr. Stoddart! What? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Turner, sir! <laughs> Constable. Turner. Jonesy, Carlo, uh -huh. William, the Hanging Committee. You approve? Did well, Aunt. Grazie. Prego. <laughs> Would everything be to your satisfaction, Mr. Turner? It is indeed, Mr. President. There's a splendid cornucopia. Cornucopia. Good morning, Turner. Good morning to you, Mr. Leslie. Rabbi. Good morning, Mr. Turner. My other piece, where is it located? We placed it in the anteroom. The anteroom. Uh. <laughs> Mr. Carew! <laughs> Turner. Stanny. Uh, Mr. Turner, sir. Is it for His Majesty? Indeed. I hope it meets his expectations. It will. Grout. Mr. Turner. Sir John Sarr. T.M.W. Turner Esquire. As I live and breathe. My dear friend. Find yourself well, John? Relishing the day. Capital. Only now I was admiring your seascape. There she is. Mr. Pickersgill. Good morning, William. Oh. oh. He has the air of despondency upon him. He is slighted. For why? Yet again, in the anteroom. It's like you're, co you're covering all of society in that one room. There's the entire breadth of what it means to be an artist in that room, or an artist of that kind. Yeah, it was a club, you know, and um, at that time, there were no women. <laughs> uh, there were when it started in the, in the 18th century, a few. But at this stage, and later, of course, there were. Um, so it was, it was a club. The interesting thing is that people assume that Turner was the only 
working class, uh, person with working class, but he wasn't actually, quite a lot of them were. A lot of them were from artisan backgrounds, weren't they? But um, it was a club, you know. And Turner was both an insider, wasn't he, and an outsider. He was very much part of it. He'd been admitted when he was 14. So he was very much part of the thing. Uh, but at the same time, they all knew he was better. You could see them re respecting him, deferring to him. Yeah, I think it's sort of the old saying that they'd rather have had him inside the tent pissing out than outside pissing in, really, you know. Um, um, one of the things that's striking in the, in the movie is his relationship to his father and the intensity of that and what it meant to him practically more than anyone else in his life, it would appear. Indeed, that, 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 is, that is in fact true, yeah. Um, he, uh, I think that a lot of that came out of how we, you know, uh, about fact. I mean, it is written in many different uh, books, uh, biographies, that they did have this very special relationship. And it was also written that he was uh, completely um, heartbroken at his death. Um, quite a, a lot of the, the relationship um, was revolved around um, a character who's not actually in this, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and we talked about her a lot, and she informs a lot about their relationship and a lot about how Turner internally is made, and that's his mother. You know, she's only really referred to on his father's deathbed, but she was an enormous influence on him through the lack of her ability, poor thing, because she would have been diagnosed as being, um, having a very serious mental condition, which would have been helped through drugs, but then she was just known as a raving lunatic. Um, and they actually eventually uh, had her incarcerated in St. Beverly Hems Hospital, which is Bedlam. And I think this relationship caused the big scar in him that was also the motor for whatever he, another motor within this implosive soul he had. You know. Because you could also see um, his relationship to women was troubled, let's say, in, in all of them. I think it's... Not in all of them, no. No, yeah. except, for, except for Mrs... Uh, yes, except for the, the the lovely, warm relationship he had with Mrs. Booth. That's the one. Yeah, I think I, I think he was a very uncompromising man in many different ways, and a very, um, you know, it's your job, especially when you're working with uh, uh, Mike, uh, to to create a character that's got all of its faults on display as much as its uh, its attractive uh, qualities. You, you know, you're, you know, when you work with Mike, you, your job is to serve the character, serve it absolutely in, with all of its foulness as well as its glory. And, you know, um, that, that was one of the very intriguing, challenging things that we were encountering a man of massive, uh, massive contradiction. And one of the ways you express it, as has been, you will see, has been pointed out, is through the guttural sounds that he makes that are not exactly language, but they are almost like emissions of what's going on inside of him. Yeah, exactly. I think they grew organically as we were developing the character that it's somebody who could say a million things, but doesn't say anything. If anything, he's feeling it. It's a representation of somebody feeling a million things, but there's not enough for him to be able to say. So it, in a sense, that's his emotional language. You know, his intellectual language is, is actually via his hand and his paint rather than anything. 
Um, speaking of his hand and his paint, let's take a look at this other clip, which you will see, the hand at work. Did your teacher teach you to spit? No, that came naturally, yeah. Well, Turner, we know, we know that Turner did spit and do all that stuff and blow mysterious brown powder and you know, that's, that's, it came from that in the first place. Tell me about the music, which is extraordinary and is so much a part of the film. Um, Topsy Turvy obviously was built on the music of Gilbert and Sullivan, but this is an entirely different way of using music to emphasize. Yes, I mean obviously with Topsy Turvy, as you say, that the music was the music that was the music of the period, or indeed of the work. I felt very strongly that this film needed to have a contemporary score that wasn't faux period music. I mean, there is the, the Purcell that he sings. Uh, the um, Beethoven that's played in that scene uh, and the Rossini that's sung in the next scene. Um, but um, I, 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 it felt that he did a different sort of sound. Gary Yershon is a great composer. He's done the music for the all my more recent films. And he agreed. And who would have thought, who could have thought that the score for a period film about Turner, that the principal sound would be five saxophones, because that's what it is. And I think it's a wonderful score. One of the important things about it, apart from the, 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 the sound itself, which somehow comes out of the sense of the spirit of Turner, his paintings, is also that we're quite spare with it. Uh, it's not slapped all over the film like so many movies do, like vinaigrette dressing. I mean, it, it's spare and it doesn't happen all the time so that the silences are important and the music, when it happens, earns its keep. It does become like an oral projection, oral projection of what that kind of painting is like. It's, it's so. just brilliantly mixed together there. Um, uh, I wanted to read another piece of your statement here. 
Mr. Turner is about the tensions and contrasts between this very mortal man and his timeless work, between his fragility and his strength. It is also an attempt to evoke the dramatic changes in his world over the last quarter century of his life. In Topsy Turvy, you also managed to talk about the changing world through the course of what these musicians were about. Tell me what, tell me, could you talk a little bit more about that? Well, actually, I, I, I thought you were going to say, uh, in Topsy Turvy, they're, they're kind of fascinated by telephones and fountain pens and those things. And, uh, and here Turner is, you know, con is confronted by photography and trains start running during the course and, of the film. And um, so. spectrum, spectrum of light and time. Uh, I went to um, the Reykjavik Film Festival uh, a few weeks ago and they took us, some filmmakers, took us out around Iceland and we went to this place where the tectonic plates didn't connect. You've been, obviously. And that area there between the tectonic plates is where the Vikings used to have their parliament a thousand years ago. And we were talking about this and I s they said, oh, they used to come from all over the island and have the, the, the parliamentary, hold the parliament. And I said, how did they know when to come? And out of the discussion that then took place, we realized, we wound up asking ourselves the following question, which was, how did we make films 20 years ago when we didn't have cells, cell phones? How did we do anything when, before there were cell phones? How did you do anything before the computers? How did anyone achieve anything? Um, and I'm talking about something that many of us here are old enough to have seen all those changes happen quite apparently quite recently. So the whole, I'm fascinated by the way that life changes, things change, just by the sheer speed of progress and development. And that is something that is going on in this film because it runs from 1825 to 1851. And although um, there are a whole bunch of other things happening, or, and the central event is Turner growing older and becoming more radical in his painting and various things happening to him, him doing various things. Nevertheless, that sense of change, that um, fluid picture that we've made of that change happening is an important implicit element in the film. There's also a, a, a beautiful scene where there is a, an in-the-house concert and there's a girl singing and the audience is as engaged as if we were watching the most spectacular action movie. That was the entertainment of the night. Yes. And the words or the naughtiness of some of the lyrics just made grown men laugh and be completely thrilled. And that was such a specific little detail to show what... What the what entertainment was. Exactly, exactly. Um, um, I would imagine that you shot many more scenes than we see here. No, actually. No, no? There are, there are one or two. Well, no, pretty much what we shot is what you see, really. Because the specifics of when you see a woman playing a keyboard or when you see that music adds an entirely different aspect to Turner than seeing him painting. Uh, was there anything that was hard to capture for you that you were just not satisfied with? <laughs> It's a difficult question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the answer to that is. Is there anything? Well, I think because of the budgetary restraints, you wanted to go to Venice. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, it's remarkable. Um, I think that you know, 
when I uh, the only way I can be objective about this is look at the film as a whole. I can't be objective about my thing in it, but this film we had to, you know, uh, I don't know whether I'm allowed to say how much it costs, but it costs under. Um, cost eight, one, it cost eight and a half million yeah, pounds. So about eleven million dollars, which and you know nowadays for something with a cast of seventy, a period piece and something that is so beautifully shot technically, um, is quite remarkable. Um, and I think in a sense the whole fact that the film exists the way it does is a bit of a miracle. So and what. Mike's genius is done really in the way he's realised it is that you don't know what the heart doesn't see the mind doesn't grieve about whatever the saying is what, I can't remember what it is but you know I think you get, get the gist um, Now you have worked together on five films uh, Six well, films six. and one theatre play yeah. At this point can you give a certain raise of an eyebrow and you would understand or other way around, is there a shorthand communication that... I think um, without trying to sound mystical or in any way um, uh, misleading about this, the, the, the privilege and the pleasure of working with somebody over a long time, and it happens always uh, with the way that might runs the, the, the preparation for a film, is that because you become, it gets everybody to pull so assiduously on the same rope and think as much as possibly on the same subject, that there is, and I'm not going to be mystical about that, there is, grows a kind of telepathy because everybody is pretty much aware on what this elusive thing we're looking for is. So there is a, there is a kind of um, telepathy that happens within it. That's, uh, and I suppose if you've been doing it for 33 years, okay, not every day, but there's going to be a certain amount which, would, which I wouldn't be able to pinpoint exactly but um, I don't know is the answer and, and then going into it when you are first starting to explore finding your way into Mr. Turner did you take wrong turns that you first thought oh it's going to be like this and then you realise this is not working well you know can I answer anything? It's ex- it, this is um, it, it, with any character working the way we do it's complex with this character it's very complex indeed. So, I mean, it's experimental. It's truly experimental, and therefore, by definition, experimental means right turns and wrong turns and trying things, and some things work and some things, some, some things fall by the wayside and other things grow into other things, and so on. That's what it's about. And, of course, all of this film, the whole of this film, like all of my films, um, which start life with no script and there never is actually a document called a script, though it's what we arrive at is very precise in what we shot through rehearsal. But it, because it does come out of improvisations, by definition, that is a whole bunch of wrong turns and right turns because that's what an improvisation is. Yeah, and to illustrate that, really, what um, presented itself, and it's only really working in this way and with, with Mike's invention, that you can tr- triumph over something that, was originally, uh, the more we discovered about Turner, the more contradictory he was and the more contradictory um, uh, reports there was of him, what was at first seemingly an impediment actually presented itself as the simple point 
of the fact that he was a man of absolute contradictions, that he was this character um, that was the manifestation of contradiction, which in the end led to what he could create. So it's only really working in that way of Mike's invention, Mike's bottle and bravery to experiment and allow you to make mistakes that you would push through the impediment into realizing that's the whole fact of it. I think we can open this to some questions if we have any, and we have people on the floor who will be able to help us with microphones. Hi, how are you? First, I'm, I'm very well, thank you. How I'm are you? I'm really honored to meet no, you. I love, ask the question. I love British people. So I have both, you know, question for both. Uh, first, Mike, your movie is always fantastic. I love Secrets and Lies and Bella Drake. So I see. I believe so many people, no, no in, in, you inspired so many people, but who inspired you? Like, uh, or all your imagination, original, you know? Like, uh, oh, oh, then, sorry, I have a question for you too. Okay, okay. Sorry, well, sir. Well, oh, okay. So, how many questions? Uh, okay, quickly, quickly. Uh, you look by the shop, you look like a winner, and you won uh, best, you know, actor, saying congratulations. Yeah. Oh, thank you okay, very yeah. much. Then, sorry, I'm Japanese. I heard you went to Japan for last Samurai. You spoke Japanese too. How was making, you know, moving okay, in Japan? So we're going to do Thank one question so at a Thank time. You Let you I can answer that simply. We went to Japan very briefly uh, on The Last Samurai, and I did have to do an entire speech, uh, which is about 23 lines in Japanese, but it took me six weeks to learn them. <laughs> and uh, as soon as I'd done the scene, I can't remember any of it. So, um, again, it's... The old saying, there's nothing like the, uh, the knowledge of being hanged in the morning to concentrate the mind wonderfully. So, um, there you go. Yes. Osu. Osu. That's the answer to your question. Who influenced me? Osu. 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 Okay. That's the <laughs> Elaborate, please. And one or two other, one or two others, but there's not enough time to recite the whole list. So we'll just stick at Ozu. Can you can you explain a little how? Well, you know his films. I mean, he makes films about people and their ordinary lives, and he finds the profound drama in that, in in those in those stories. Hey, thanks for being here. Um, the trailer, the cinematography is beautiful. Could, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your uh, process working with your cinematographer. Yes, um, Dick Pope, the cinematographer, is a brilliant master cinematographer. He shot every film I've made since Life is Sweet, which we made, with Tim and I made together in 1990. Uh, we had a long time to think about this film because it took a long time to get it together and raise the money. We talked about it a lot. It was obvious that the film needed to be, to, exp to implicitly have the, the look, the feel, the atmosphere, the colors, the palette, the tones of Turner. Um, and so we absorbed a lot. We were fantastically lucky when we shot the film because shooting films in England is a hazardous business. If you've been to England, you know the weather is very unpredictable because it, you know, there's all kinds of things go on around the British Isles. But we were extremely lucky and the light was fantastic whenever it needed to be. And of course, we shot the film with a digital camera and he was able, Dick Pope was able to do some very magical things 
particularly in post-production, which enhanced the very um, brilliant things that he'd shot naturally. Besides examining the life of an artist and analyzing or illuminating what an artist goes through, you've also examined the process of aging. And so both of you have done films which have looked at how people have aged and whether it's been a successful experience or there's decay. Can you talk a little bit about why that fascinates you and, and, and uh, about some of the films that you've addressed? Do you think you are sufficiently decaying? Yeah, I, did, yeah. I didn't I did. say you were decaying. No. no, but I have been around for a few decay decades. And um, so why it fascinates me more and more is because I'm getting older, basically. I mean, look, the serious answer to the question is, you know, I try and make films about life, which is about living and dying and growing old and being babies and being, having babies and having children and being parents and parents dying and, you know, um, wanting children and not wanting them and all kinds of stuff and work and surviving and, you know, uh, sex and all kinds of things that our li life is about. And one of the things that life is about is growing old. But so I've also made films about being young, you know. Uh, to me, it's all out there to explore, really. I was just saying uh, growing old, if you're lucky. Yeah. Because um, a lot of people don't. Um, you know, so I've always thought... Um, Rather than um, you know uh, lamenting about getting old, it's always better than the alternative, unless you're in agony. <laughs> um, I'm fascinated by the no script start of your films. Um, do you start with any kind of structure, or do you give the actors object ob objectives, actions? How does that evolve? Well, before we start shooting, I work out a broad structure. But that's after we've spent months wor working on the c characters and relationships. And with this film, of course, the structure takes its cue from the actual events of Turner's life. But um, I I in the end, it's about going on location and making a film up as we go along, though according to you know, uh, some general sense of a structure. But it's there to that structure is there to challenge and change and because the important thing, like any piece of art of any kind, is the actual m moment of creation of the actual thing itself. The preparation is only the scaffolding. In terms of a script, as I've said, we don't have a script in the conventional sense, but what we arrive at scene by scene, location by location, is something that's very precise. So that what I take to the cutting room, the editing suite, is a whole lot of uh, raw material, but that is pretty precise and has its own um, built-in logic and structural considerations. So, so in other words, just the, the real bottom line is People talk about, you know, the screenplay, working on a screenplay. Um, the, a screenplay is only a screenplay. It's the f we don't make a screenplay, we make a film. And the film is the thing. Just as this building we're in, once there are somewhere some architects' plans for this building. But if you look at the building, you don't say, 
um, you don't start thinking about what the plans were like, you think about the building, really. And that's what we do in Make a Film. Thanks. Um, obviously, the sea is terribly important for Turner. And I'm really interested in the location that you chose. Uh, and I, I, I know it. And I haven't ever been to Margate, so I'm just interested in what you would say, you say about did the you location. Did you say you've never been to Margate? I've never been to Margate, but I think I, I know the place that it was shot. Where was it shot? King Sand in Cornwall. Very good. Well done. Uh, <laughs> we go there on holiday a lot. Okay. Um, it's, lov it's a lovely place, isn't it? <laughs> it's very we, nice. We actually, I mean, those that people that know Margate will look at the film and say, it's a very good film and everything, but it, no, this bears no resemblance to Margate. Um, we, you can't film in Margate. It wasn't practical. Um, Turner went there because of the light, and we felt the light in King Sand was very good. Um, but, yeah, uh, I think you've answered your own question. That's where it was, yes. But also, the Margate now doesn't look anything like the Margate of then. It, Margate has developed over the years, and it's become a big... Um, it's rather broken down... Um, once very popular seaside resort. I mean, it's re-emerging now, ironically, because it's got the Turner Centre. It's got a, a gallery there, which um, is obviously a you know uh, an homage to him. But it's also where he worked. And I mean, there still is um, amazing light in Thanet. It's just that, as I say, Margate does not look like. So we had to find somewhere that looked like Margate then. You know, vaguely. But, vaguely. Yeah. <laughs> Hi there. Um, my question is regarding the improvisation. Being that this was a historical real character, real person, was there any restrictions regarding how far you were, as an actor, allowed yourself to go with the improv? And also, regards to the director, did you allow the actors, how far did you let the actors go with regards to the improvisation without losing who really Mr. Turner was and how you want the character to be? You know, the fact is this. You can research for a million years you can read everything that was ever written about it. But you've still got to make it come to life in an organic way in front of the camera. So don't get um, confused by the notion of the improvisation. It's not about randomly uh, ad-libbing a script. It's about a way of bringing characters to life in a real way and in a three-dimensional way. And part of what happened with this particular project was that the, the actors, Tim not least, are very good at getting the spirit, the feel of, getting, of 19th century language. I mean, Tim has actually read a lot of Dickens. And he's actually good at 19th century. And a lot of these actors, you know, they, so. So they could get into character and actually improvise in a, in a pretty accurate way. But then we never film improvisations. We then work on the script through um, a, a rehearsal and arrive at something that's very precise. And my job is to make sure that the language, even if we're making a contemporary film, it's still to make sure the language is accurate, both from a dramatic and from a character and also from a social or cultural point of view. So... Uh, the point about the improvisation is it's not a question of random things happening or it going off at tangents. It's a way of making it solid and real and from which we can then distill something that is precise. 
I just want to say again, congratulations to Tim Spall today for the award that you've gotten. Thank you to Mike Lee and Timothy Spall for coming here. Well, I here. certainly wouldn't have got it without this gentleman. Well, good uh, team. Oh, no, you know, I you certainly know. wouldn't have made the film without him in it. So there you go. <laughs> it's love. Thank you so much.